We are in this little series, The Transforming Power of the Gospel. And um, this morning, we want to talk about the gospel expects a new way of thinking. But just to remind us where we have been uh, many weeks ago, our last message was in Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2. And we basically made our way uh, through verse 1. And we talked a little bit about the idea that God expects um, sacrifice. That God expects sacrifice. Uh, you know, that's all inclusive of the worship of God. That's what worshiping God is. In the Old Testament, you can see the little thing in the bulletin or in your outline there. In the Old Testament, they offer dead sacrifices. But in the New Testament, we're encouraged to offer living sacrifices. Um, in the Old Testament, the priest would make a sacrifice on the altar. Well, in the New Testament, we are <laughs> the sacrifice. We kind of maybe feel like Isaac. You know, hey, God, where's the, <laughs> where's the sacrifice? Uh, you are it. And so uh, last time we were together, we looked a little bit about the nature of our sacrifice. And uh, we talked about how the sacrifice is to be living rather than dead. We don't bring a dead sacrifice. It says there in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present what? Your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's a good thing. We don't have to sacrifice and kill ourselves. We can be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. And so it's a living sacrifice. Secondly, we said that it involved the giving to God of our bodies. And that means our physical bodies. That means our eyes, our minds, our tongues, what we handle. Thirdly, the sacrifice we are to offer God is to be what? Holy. Holy, which means to be separate, set apart. Holy unto God. This isn't a sacrifice we bring for everybody. This is a sacrifice that's dedicated completely and wholly to God. And then also, the fourth thing we looked at in review was the sacrifice is to be acceptable to God. It's acceptable. In other words, it's given in the way he prescribes. You know, we have a lot of Christians today in churches today that are kind of running amok in their Christianity because they're out there doing what they want to do. They're running their churches like they want to run their churches. They're not counseling the word of God, but rather they're counseling CEOs of large companies, how we can get more people, how we can be more effective. Now, there's wonderful things that you can learn from a lot of CEOs from big companies, but I would have to say that spirituality is not one of them. <laughs> so we have to be careful. We don't want to invade the church with the world because then that would not be acceptable to God. And when we bring our sacrifice to God, he says that it has to be done in a way that's filled with humility. You know, we don't march to God and say, hey, here I am. Look at me. I know you need me, God, and I'm here just to give myself to you because I know the church would never be the same without me. 
Unfortunately, that's the case of a lot of believers and even spiritual leaders. They think they're God's gift to the world or to the church. Not one of us is irreplaceable. We're all replaceable. One day we will all die and someone else will take our place. Because that's God's plan. That's God's purpose. It was interesting when we were down at the Shepherd Conference several years ago, we were able to sit in on an elders meeting that they had kind of a, just a casual thing they were doing. But afterwards they had a question and answer and somebody asked, well, I think John MacArthur was in the hospital. He had a knee infection and almost died. So that kind of brought up the question, well, what happens to Grace Community Church? What happens to Grace to You Radio if John MacArthur dies? Have you guys ever thought of this? And the chairman of the board, this Italian guy, stood up and said, yeah, it's real easy. I take over with his New York accent. Everybody went, whoa, he's just kidding. He said, this, this ministry isn't about John MacArthur. One day that man will die. Someone else will step up to the plate. He's been a wonderful servant of, the, of God, and we've been blessed to have him as our pastor for all these years. But one day he will die. He will go on to be with the Lord. See, and that's why it's important that the church realizes that this sacrifice that we're to give to God is important for the, the nurturing of the church. Because it's not about one person. It's about a group of people coming together as the body of believers, as we saw this past week in VBS, and working together for the common good, in that case, of ministering to children. It's wonderful to see that. God's not looking for lone rangers that want to do their thing their own way with their, their own people. So the sacrifice is just that. And then we looked at the motive of our sacrifice, and we mentioned some mercies of God, the mercies of God. And I'm just not going to go into these details because we kind of mentioned them last time, but think about these as mercies, divine election, the idea that God chose you. He didn't leave it up to you for you to choose him because you know what? If he would have left it up for you to choose him, guess what? You never would have done it, ever. Divine election, justification, the idea that God declares you righteous even though you're not before him. Our identification in Christ. What a wonderful thing to be identified with Christ. The simple fact that we're under grace today. We're not under the law. Amen? I mean, think if we were under the law. Whoa, what? You know, I don't know. We're under grace. We're under God's unmerited favor. The idea that God would bless us with a spirit that indwells us the moment we come to him for salvation. He doesn't leave us on our own. But he gives us the same power and the same glory that raised Christ out of the the grave. And he puts it right within our own hearts, in our own bodies. It says that our bodies are what? The temple of the Holy Spirit as believers. That's why we're to care for them. That's why we're to make sure that they're cared for. And with that, I'll say this. You have to be careful, though. Because sometimes people today kind of fall into the area of Romans 1, where it talks about them exchanging the creation for, or exchanging the creator for the creator. They, they worship his creation. They don't worship the creator. 
And sometimes as Christians, you know, yeah, the, the body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, but you know what? We should care for it the best we can, but you know what's going to happen one day? Your body's going to die. <laughs> You're going to breathe your last breath pending the Lord's return, and it's going to be just that. It's going to be a body without a soul. It's going to be what? Paul calls it a tent. He doesn't call it a mansion. He doesn't call it a grandiose house. He calls it a tent. Maybe some of you who like to go camping have nice tents. I'm not a camper, so I can't really go there with you. But I've been in some tents, and I don't like tents. I just do not like tents. When I was little, in Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, all you know, I'd spend time in tents, man. I'd be the kid that crawled out of the tent and slept under the stars. Get a bunch of teenage kids, young kids in a tent. All kinds of stuff happens. I want fresh air when I sleep. Sorry, but that's just me. Maybe that's too much information. But the spirit indwells us. We're not to worship our bodies. We're to take care of them, but we're not to worship them. One day they'll go back to dust. And then also he gives us help and affirmity. The idea that we sang this morning that there's no separation possible from our relationship with Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Have you ever thought about the coming glory when he returns? What's going to happen? Incredible. No more pain, no more suffering. These bodies will be transformed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. All the cares of this world will be gone. Amen. Just gone. And you'll be in his presence. And also, the mercy of having confidence in the God's, in God's faithfulness. That God loves us, God cares for us. He's faithful to his word. He's not going to promise one thing and do another like people do. Like we do sometimes. God is not that way. God is a God of faithfulness. And then we looked at the reasonableness of our sacrifice. That's not there on the screen or in the outline, but it's reasonable because of what God has already done for us. It's reasonable because what God is continuing to do in us, he doesn't save us and then say, okay, you're on your own now, pal. See you in heaven one day. No, he gives us the spirit, as I said. It's reasonable because such service to God is God's will for us. That's why we should be involved in serving him. That's why we should be involved in sacrificing for him. It's reasonable because God is worthy of our very best effort. It doesn't mean you're always going to be top-notch at everything you do, but you should try your hardest, no matter what it is. Because why? You're doing it for his glory, not yours. We have to keep that in mind sometimes. It's also reasonable because only spiritual things will last. Only spiritual things will last. All the accomplishments you have here on earth, your job, your house, all, it's not going to last. It's going to be gone. You're not going to take anything with you. I've never been to many funerals, done many funerals, and I've never seen a U-Haul attached to the casket. You know, and I've seen some people throw some stuff in the casket at the last minute, which to me was, I don't know, some of it was kind of expensive stuff. I thought, wow, that's kind of a waste. I mean, why do you put that to God's use? But anyway, you know, sentimental things, rings, whatever. But it's, you know, it's not going to go with that person. So today we want to look at this idea that we have been transformed. And in verse 2 it says this. 
It says, do not be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, there's two commands here in this verse. There's a negative command and a positive command. Just some introductory comments about this verse. If you look at this verse in light of different translations, it's kind of interesting because you get a fuller meaning of really what the original language means. Uh, One translation, the New International Version, I'm not a big fan of the New International Version, but I like what they say here. They say, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. See, there's two key words here. The idea of the world, what is that? It means basically the present age. Aeon in the Greek, it means the age to come. In contrast to the age to come, excuse me, it means this present age, all that's going on. He says, do not conform to that age, to this world. And that's the second word there, do not conform. That's a compound word in the Greek. It has the original meaning in our, in our English, we would get the, the word scheme, scheme from. So the verse means this, do not let the age in which you live force you into its scheme or its pattern, its schematic of thinking and behaving. Don't do that as a believer. Resist it. The New American Catholic Bible says this, do not conform yourselves to this age. The Jerusalem Bible says, do not model yourselves on the behavior of the world around you. The living paraphrase says this, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. And the paraphrase by J.B. Phillips is really good. It says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Isn't that good? Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. See, the idea in each one of those translations is that the world has its way of thinking and doing things and exerting pressure on Christians to conform to their way of thinking. Do you feel that? I feel it every day. But instead of being conformed, Christians, the Bible says, are to be changed from within. Increasingly to live for Christ, the one we follow. So what Paul is saying here is stop allowing yourselves to be influenced by this evil world. And it has the idea that it's already going on. And you don't have to go very far to realize that. We feel pressure every day to conform. I remember when they... California passed the crazy law. They couldn't have bags anymore or whatever. So now you had to pay for bags. And you were just expected to pay for these bags or bring a bunch of bags with you or whatever. And I just remember I went through probably, I don't know, several months. I'd go shopping. Oh, how many bags would you like, sir? You don't have any of your own. How many? I don't want any. 
Well, I, just give me this stuff. I'd shove it in my pockets. I'd put it everywhere. And I'd walk out to my car, proud that I didn't spend a quarter on a stupid bag because I would not conform to this dumb law that they passed. And even now, I'll throw the stuff in the cart and dump it in the trunk before I'll get one of those bags. I mean, I have bought them just out of convenience, finally conformed. But it's little things like that. It's all around us. In ways of living and lifestyle. The Christian mindset is a thing of the past. Now you must conform, the world tells you. Don't you dare call certain things sin that we call a lifestyle or we call a choice. Because if you do, you're being intolerant. I was moved when I saw what happened a week or so ago with the congressman who was assassination attempt on them at their ballpark. And I remember watching throughout the day later as the news kind of unfolded, all these congressmen gather on government property for prayer. And I thought, whoa, wait a minute. Where's Where's the separation of church and state now? I mean, I'm all for prayer, don't get me wrong. But boy, you have to do it according to their rules, their, their whims. See, we, we live in a hypocritical society today. And it's funny how God uses crazy things like that assassination attempt to bring people to their knees to realize, you know what? We're not really in control of anything. We need to acknowledge the one who is in control. And even though it's a feeble attempt to cry out to the creator, at least they acknowledge it. And so this verse is saying, stop allowing yourselves to be influenced by the world. Do not masquerade around wearing the costume of the world. Because that's not who you are. That's not a true reflection of who you are. My sister-in-law makes these beautiful costumes for... Is it like Mardi Gras or whatever? I don't know. What, what do you call it? Mardi Gras. Yeah, kind of stuff. And she, 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 she designs all these costumes. It's amazing. I mean, the feathers coming out everywhere. You know, it's just beautiful things. And she just got back from a week down in Hollywood spending time with all these people who do this um, Mardi Gras thing. But it's funny because you you look at these people and they're all dressed up in these costumes, but it's like, that's not really who they are. They don't wear the stuff to work. You know, they don't don't, don't get up in the morning and put on their feather little outfit. That's just a masquerade. It's it's just a costume that they want to wear for a day as they march down Hollywood Boulevard. It's not really the true reflection of who they are. They're a person. They don't really have feathers. See, and what Paul's saying here is do not wear those masks that the world system calls you to wear. Refuse to do it. And so many Christians 
don't do it. They do wear the mask. They buy into everything the world's selling. They get wrapped up in it. To the point where they got to wear the latest fad, the latest clothes that the world wears. Every time something comes out, they got to run down and get it or get on the internet and order it. Because they got to be in style. They got to have the latest stuff. Now, there's nothing wrong with looking nice. There's nothing wrong with having updated clothes. I thank you, the Lord, for my wife who keeps me kind of up to date in what I'm wearing every week. If it wasn't for her, I'd, I don't know what I'd be wearing up there, but it probably wouldn't match. I guarantee you that. See, people today want to be part of this system. All the world's systems that are created. They want to have the same entertainment. They want to stay current with the new things that come along. And then they wonder why God does not bless them more. There's nothing wrong with being up to date in your fashion or electronic gadgets or whatever. But see, when those things, I think it was Chuck Swindoll who said, there's nothing wrong with having nice things. Nothing wrong with that at all. The danger comes is when those nice things have you. <laughs> when you're a slave to those, as Sam spoke about a couple weeks ago. Kenneth Wiest, who does word studies, he said it well when he said this, Stop assuming an outward expression which is patterned after the age, an expression which does not come from within and is not representative of what you are in your inner being as a regenerate child of God. He's saying stop the masquerade. Change the outward appearance to match what you have become on the inside. God expects a new way of thinking when we are affected by the gospel. Now notice these two commands here. The first one is a negative one. Do not be conformed to this world. The second one is a positive. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, these are two sides of the same coin of commitment to Christ, you might say. What does this negative command mean? Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. What does it mean? Do not be conformed. Do not be conformed. As I said, we get it from the word. We get schematic or scheme. It refers to an outward expression that does not reflect who you are on the inside. used of masquerading or putting on an act. This last week, I made a feeble attempt to grow a beard because I was supposed to be Paul in prison. Luckily, I got to shave it off Friday, man. Thing was, or Saturday, I guess I did, but boy, that was nasty. I don't know how you guys with beards do it. I just could not do that. But all week, I was Paul in prison. I sat up here in a chair chained to Emmanuel or Hector, whoever was my guard. And every day the kids would come in and it was, you know, it's just simple decorations. But in their minds, man, I was Paul. When I'd walk over in the fellowship hall, the first day I had my, this robe on I wore. Hey, Paul, I thought you were supposed to be in chains. I'm like, oh, I got to take this thing off, you know, because confuse the poor children. Nice to know they're paying attention, though. But even then, when I'd walk over in the fellowship hall, just in my, you know, clothes or whatever. Oh, there's Paul. Why is he? Well, he's not Paul. He doesn't have his robe on, you know. I wasn't playing that part anywhere. I wasn't being that, that masquerade. I wasn't putting on an act. But it also carries the idea of being transitory, being 
impermanent, being unstable. It has a negative in front of it. It makes the verb prohibitive. Don't do this. The verb itself is passive. It's imperative. And the passive indicating that confirmation is something we allow to be done to us. Confirmation. That's, That's what we allow the world to do to us. The imperative indicates this command. It's not a suggestion. This isn't something that we as a believer say, well, you know, if I want to be like the world, I can. No, you can't. First John says what? If you're a friend of the world, you're not a friend of God like we sang this morning. So you, you need to be very careful. Now, do we live in the world? Sure. We all have jobs. We all go places. We live on blocks where there's, there's people who are non-believers. And we live in the world. But we're not to be part of the world. We're not to follow its system. So Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't buy into it. Because that's our natural inclination. That's what we're inclined to do. We're more inclined to become like the world than we are inclined to become like Christ. You know that? Even as believers. Even with the spirit within us. That's why God put the spirit there. To convict us. When we start to maybe move a little too close to the world. And you have to be careful. You have to be wise at how you negotiate that line of demarcation between you and the world. You know, you can't become a monk. You can't go up on the hillside, live in the wilderness, and that would, that's not what God calls us to do because Jesus said very clearly that we should be what? Light. That we should be salt in this world. We should have a affect relationship with the world. We should cause and affect. We should be in the world and and they should be affected by our presence in the world. But for that to happen, we have to be who we are called to be. We have to be true to our inner self. We have to be true to who Christ is. If we try to play this game of masquerading, you know, we're one guy at work and we're another guy at church, they see right through that. That's the problem with the churches today. They're filled with people who are so much like the world, you wouldn't even know the difference whether you're at a rock concert or a church service, to be honest with you. Now, I like music. I like to go to a concert. I like to be entertained. But that doesn't have its place in church on Sunday morning, at least not according to the Bible. What did they do in the New Testament? They went house to house. They studied the apostles' teaching. They ate, to, they ate together. They had prayer together. They went out and they they witnessed to the lost and dying world around them. See, that's what we're called to be as a, a church. We're called a peculiar people. That means we don't fit in. That means sometimes when somebody asks your opinion about abortion or about gay marriage or about whatever it might be, they may not like your answer because it's not based on opinion. It's based upon the truth of the word of God. And see, the danger comes when we start to say, I can't really tell them what I believe because I'm sure they'll be offended. I remember talking to one person one time about those things. Here, Pastor, what do you think about gay marriage? I said, well, the Bible says this. 
Well, that's your opinion. No, it's the truth. If you choose not to believe it, that's your problem. And I, I use that answer for every, well, what about abortion? Well, I, I think it's wrong. I think we believe in the sanctity of life. I think God created us. I think there's a purpose for every child. Well, that's your opinion. No, it's the truth. And after a while, they bring up some subject. Oh, yeah, right. It's, they, they know what I'm going to say. Why? Because there's nothing else I could say. Yeah, it's my opinion, but my opinion is based on the truth of the word of God. See, we don't want to buy into this world system where there is no truth. Truth is relative. Truth is what, what you think it is. Well, no, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says very clearly that there is such a thing as absolute truth. Christ himself said, I am the truth. He didn't say, I'm one of many truths. He said, I am the truth, the one and only truth. When you share Christ with people and they say, well, you don't believe that, you know, it's, it's your way of the highway, right? You don't believe that Jesus is the only way to get to God. Well, yes, I do. Well, that's your opinion. No, that's the truth. <laughs> that's what the Bible says. And you can tell them, Would you, what, do you, what do you think about Jesus? Well, well, I think he was a good guy. He's a good teacher. Well, here's what Jesus said. I am the truth, the way, and he's the only way that leads to the Father. Okay, he didn't say I'm one of many. He said, I am the soul way, the soul life, the soul truth. And so we need to be reminded of that because our inclination is to yield. Our inclination is to let down our guard. Our, our inclination is to just kind of roll over and let people walk all over us and say, well, I'm still a Christian and I know what I believe, but I'm not going to cause a problem. <laughs> I think it's about time Christians start causing a little problem when they start to stand up for things. I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in a positive way. Exude some light. Give your workplace a little bit of flavor with the salt of Christ. Don't just go along with the flow. So that's what it says here. Do not be conformed. Well, then he says to this world... To this world. It's referring to the present sinful age in which we live, this world system. And who dominates the world system right now? Satan. Satan. That's who's in charge of this world system. Obviously, God is allowing him to be in charge under his sovereign hand, but that's why things are going the way they are. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it's the same word. Paul says this. In their case, the God of this world, the same world we're talking about here, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, world here represents the sum of all the demonic human philosophy of life. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul writes this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Why did he do this, Paul? To deliver us from what? From the present evil age, according to the will of God and of our God and Father. 
So Paul's words here can be paraphrased. Do not be conformed to the, the schemes or the patterns of this passing evil age. See, if the age was good, that would be one thing if this world was good. It's not. It's evil. If it was lasting, that would be another thing to take into consideration. But it's not. It's passing. If the world emulated Christ and God, well, that would be a good thing. But it doesn't. The painful truth is simply this. Such conformity is common to many of us to a greater extent than what we would like to acknowledge. Sometimes it's difficult to know when you're conforming because there's a lot of good things in the world, right? I mean, it's not like we walk out of this, these doors and, oh, the evil hits us, you know. It's, I mean, there's a lot of good things. I mean, God has blessed us to live in such a world as this. And so we're not to write the culture we live in off entirely, but we have to learn to think critically. We have to think about our, our worldview. Is it based on the Bible or is it based on the world? It's not uncommon for unbelievers, for unbelievers, people who don't know Christ, to mask themselves, to masquerade as Christians. That's not uncommon at all. I see that all the time. Unfortunately, the reverse is true as well. It's also is not uncommon for Christians to wear the world's masks. They want to enjoy the world's entertainment. They want to enjoy the world's fashions, the world's vocabulary, the world's music, many of the world's attitudes, you might say, even when those things don't conform to God's word. You know, we just kind of slough it out. Well, it's just harmful. It's not going to hurt anybody. But see, that... That kind of living is wholly unacceptable to the God that we serve. Because the world is the instrument of Satan. His ungodly influence is all over the place. It's seen in the rebellious nature of people today. Lies, error. The rapid spread of even the false religions. Those that promote self comes under the heading of the New Age movement. First John chapter 5, verse 19, John wrote this, We know that we are of God. Now, keep in mind, he wrote this several thousand years ago. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He didn't say part of the world. He said the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And clearly it still does. You don't have to look too far to see evil in this day and age we live in. We have to be careful what we read. We have to be careful what we watch. We must not be afraid to be different or peculiar, you might say. Well, what is worldliness? When you think of worldliness, what is it? And I'm just going to go through these quickly. This isn't like an in-depth course on this. But when you think of worldliness, and that's the, the first phrase of verse 2, it's warning against worldliness. That's really what he's, he's saying. Do not be conformed to this world. 
when you talk to, I've talked to people who've been in very fundamental churches, and by that I mean the negative aspect of fundamentalism, the, the legalistic aspect of fundamentalism. There's nothing wrong with the word fundamentalism. It's been hijacked. It basically just means you believe in the orthodox Christian faith. But some people classify fundamentalism and they would if you were to ask them well what what does worldly mean and they would say well things like smoking and drinking and dancing and playing cards those are all worldly things you've all heard the the little phrase the, the christian girl would say you know i don't smoke and i don't chew and i don't go with boys that do See, that's not, there's nothing wrong with that message. I mean, I don't want my granddaughter to do that either. But there's, on the other hand, that's not what Romans 2 is talking about here, 12.2. To think of worldliness only in those terms, it, it really trivializes what is a more, more far, far more serious, subtle problem. And the clue to what it is here in this next phrase, Paul urges as an alternative to being conformed to this world to be what? What's he say? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. That means that he's concerned about the way of thinking rather than just merely behaving. And today the world knows that. That's why it's trying to control the minds of our children. If they can control the minds of our children through education... All this other stuff they're pumping into their little heads. They can control it. That flows out in their actions. Right behavior will follow naturally if our thinking is straight. If our thinking is founded on biblical principles and not worldly ones. So you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, what is my worldview? Where am I looking to for principles for living? Am I watching Dr. Phil? I mean, Oprah? Where are we getting this stuff? Or are we getting it from the Bible? We are to break out of that that world's way of thinking and instead let our minds be molded by the word of God. That's what we're called to do. That's why it's so important when you go to counseling when you want to get counseled, that you go to a, a biblical counselor. It's so important as a believer to do that. Someone who's going to take the word of God and open it up and explain principles of living to you. They're not going to talk about Freud and all these other crazy guys that you know have this philosophy and psychoanalyze everything. No, they're going to apply biblical principles to your life as a Christian. It's so important that you understand that. And you can't even trust, quote, a Christian counselor today because most Christian counselors are just Christians who are secular counselors. (laughs) And so they just apply all the stuff of the world using the name Christian. But you have to go and follow a biblical counselor. And the good thing is most biblical counselors do not charge you a dime because they're not in it for the money. So it's a very beneficial thing. 
You don't need to pay somebody to go listen to your problems and then get off off the couch and come back the next week and recite the same stuff. That's not going to help anybody except the counselor. Well, what are these things? Worldliness. Look at the first thing here, secularism. What is that? It basically means the cosmos is all that there is. The cosmos, all the thing around, that's all there is. That's something that, that, that Carl Sagan would buy into. If worldliness is not just smoking and drinking and dancing and playing cards, what is it? Well, if it is a way of thinking, what is this worldly view? It's not really a single word that, word that can describe this, but secularism is good. It covers all the other isms, like humanism and relativism, pragmatism, pluralism, hedonism, materialism. It describes this framework, this very structure of the people of our time. The word secular also comes closest to what Paul says when he's writing here the pattern of this world. That's really what it is. Secular is derived from a Latin word which means age. And the word found in verse 2 here used by Paul is the exact Greek equivalent. Do not be conformed to this age. Do not be secularist in your worldview. Now, there is a right way to be secular, of course. We live in a world that is secular for the most part. We have legitimate secular concerns. But secularism is more than that. It's kind of a way of living. The best single statement of secularism is something Carl Sagan said when he had his series, The Cosmos. He was pictured standing before a spectacular view of the heavens with its, you know, many galaxies swirling around, all this stuff. And he said in a hushed voice, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. Well, that's just a flat lie. But it looked cool. Sounded good. I mean, this guy's pretty smart. Had all the graphics going on. I mean, that is bold-faced secularism. And it's bound up entirely by the limits of this material universe. What we can see, what we can touch, what we can weigh, what we can measure. There's nothing more than that. That's what they would believe. That's where you get expressions like, you know what, you only go around once. Or the now generation. All those things. And why does that, how does that affect? Well, it affects everything from our national debt to, to the way we, we deal with people on a daily basis. I mean, let our kids worry about it. doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. R.C. Sproul writes this, For secularism, all life, every human value, every human activity must be understood in the light of this present time. What matters is now and only now. All access to the above and the beyond is blocked. There is no exit from the confines of this present world. The secular is all that we have. We must make our decisions, live our lives, make our plans, all within the closed arena of this time, the here and now. I mean, that is a good description of a secular mindset. We're surrounded every day in every conceivable place and circumstance with that viewpoint. 
And yet we're told not to conform to that. Here's a contrasting view. To think secularly is to think within a frame of reference bounded by the limits of our life on earth. It is to keep one's calculations rooted in this worldly criteria. To think Christianly is to accept all things with the mind as related directly or indirectly to man's eternal destiny as the redeemed and chosen child of God. See, that's what we're called to do as believers. Because it's not just about this cosmos. And then you have humanism. You will be like God. That's all around us today too. You call people who care for other people what? Humanitarians. See, there's also a a philosophical humanism. It's a way of looking at people. Apart from God. Apart from their creator. And that is harmful and it's wrong. That's why... When you look at a a fetus who's been aborted, a doctor can say, well, that's not really a human being. That's just, that's immaterial. That's just, you know. That's why they can say that. And see, it's it's important to understand that when when you look at secular humanism, probably the best example in the Bible is in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. When Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, was on the roof of his palace looking out over the splendid hanging gardens that were in place there and the prosperous city all around. And he was impressed with the handiwork. And he said this, Daniel 4.30, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? See, that's, that's secular humanism. Look at what we have done. Everything he saw was of him, by him, and for him, and for his glory. That's the day and age we live in. Well, God didn't tolerate it with Nebuchadnezzar. As a matter of fact, he judged him instantly. Nebuchadnezzar was driven out to live with the beast and act like a beast until he acknowledged that God alone is the true ruler of the universe and everything exists for his glory, not Nebuchadnezzar's. And a little later on in that chapter, Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 and 35, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. It's a song I was listening to the other day by Mercy Me called Even If. It's a great little song. It talks about how you trust God. And how wonderful God is to save us and he can heal us and do all this. But what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't do those things? Well, he's still God. (laughs) Even if he doesn't do those things, he's still God. His sovereign purpose still reigns. See, humanism is opposed to God. It's hostile to Christianity. And it's always been that way. Ever since the very beginning. The humanist manifesto. In the 1933 document, it says, Traditional theism... 
the belief in God, especially faith and prayer hearing God, assume to love and to care for persons, to hear and to understand their prayers, and to be able to do something about them, is an unproved and outmodeled faith. Outmoded faith. Salvationism, based on mere affirmation, still appears as harmful, diverting people with false hopes of heaven hereafter. Reasonable minds look to other means of survival. There is no credible evidence that life survives the death of the body, is another part of their little manifesto. We find insufficient evidence for the belief in the existence of the supernatural, and it goes on and on and on. That's humanism. Then you have relativism. When you're talking about humanism, you have to talk about relativism. Because if you, if you don't have a, a focal point for everything, then you have no absolutes. That's why as Christians, we believe in the, the, the book of the Bible. We believe in God's word. We believe that it has lasting power, staying power, that God is faithful to his word. We don't just get up there and teach whatever we want, when we want. One professor at the University of Chicago wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind. And on the very first page he says this, There is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. And if you believe that truth is relative, they can lead you wherever they want to go. Doesn't matter. Or materialism. We live in a material mess today. And we see it played out in our lives on a daily basis. I think it was Matana who had the song Material Girl. Okay. See, the Bible says this about Christ and materialism, just so we have a clear understanding. I mean, because it's so different from even our perspective as modern-day Christians. Um, I mean, when you look at, when you look at Jesus Christ, um, he was so different. I mean, he was born into this poor family, he was laid in a borrowed manger at his birth. He never had a home. He never had a bank account or a family of his own, really. Because he said in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, what? Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has what? No place to lay his head. And at his trial before Pilate, he said in John chapter 18, verse 36, My kingdom is what? Not of this world. And if it were, my servants would fight. But my kingdom is from another place. I mean, even when he died, he was laid in somebody else's tomb. How would you like that? In a borrowed tomb. I mean, if there was ever an individual, beloved, who operated on the basis of values above and beyond this world, it was Jesus Christ. He was the polar opposite of the material girl, but at the same time, no one has ever affected this world for good as much as Jesus Christ. And in, it is into his image that we are to be transformed each day 
more and more and more rather than being forced into the mold of the world around us. We need to be reminded of that. Well, the second command here in closing, the positive command, don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We'll talk about the renewal of your mind next week. But this idea of being transformed, it's kind of an incredible word. See, conformity is something that happens to you outwardly. But transformation happens inwardly. The Greek word here for transfer, transformation is the same word we get metamorphosis from. Exact same word. It's what happens to a, a little caterpillar that turns into this beautiful butterfly. See, it changes. It's transformed. The Greek word is found four times in the New Testament. Once here, once in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it's interesting because... Paul uses that word to describe our being transformed into the glorious likeness of Jesus Christ. Our physical bodies will be transformed. And then it's used twice in the Gospels, speaking of Jesus' transfiguration on the mount where he went with Peter, James, and John. It says in Matthew 17, Mark 9, verse 2 there, it says, There he was transfigured before them. That's the same word described here as transformation by the renewing of our minds so that we will not be conformed into the current pattern, the current schematic of this world. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, this positive command being transformed by the renewing of your mind, the language is just very graphic. It's something that Paul wanted us to understand. He wanted us to be clear about. See, this is something that we're faced with every day. This doesn't happen immediately at salvation. It doesn't happen that, okay, wow, we're just automatically transformed in the image of Christ and we never sin again. No, we're left in this, this sinful body, in this sinful world to live out what's called a, a peculiar life here on earth. To be salt and light for Christ. And trust me, that is not something you can do on your own. That is something you need to rely on the Spirit of God to do within you. That's why Paul says, hey, this life I live now, I don't live it. It's Christ that lives through me. And when you come to that understanding, you realize that, wow, how utterly dependent upon God we need to be. It doesn't matter whether you've known Christ six minutes or 60, 70 years. That dependence never stops. You never get to a point in your Christian life where you just kind of coast. Never happens. It's kind of frustrating in a way. But it makes you yearn. It makes you long for that day when he will return. And we will be instantly transformed and brought into his glorious presence to ever be with the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that we would take these words to heart. Lord, as believers, this is something we need to be about every day. 
that we need to be presenting ourselves, our bodies, as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is our reasonable spiritual worship. That we have to be on guard not to conform, not to be pushed into the mold of this world. But Lord, we thank you that you have transformed us and that transformation continues as we renew our mind. And we'll be talking about that next week, what that means to have your mind renewed by the word of God. Lord, only then will we be able to discern what the will of God is, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. And Father, we pray for each heart, each person here in this room today. Lord, no matter what they're going through, no matter what burdens they may be carrying, Father, I pray that they would understand that all those things are going to pass. That one day, they will stand before you. And Father, they will either stand before you as you'll be their Savior, or you'll be their judge. And Lord, I pray that they would understand it's never too late to turn your heart to Christ, to cry out to God, to cry out to Christ. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. I acknowledge Christ is the only way. That's a prayer that when prayed from a sincere heart, God will answer. And he will form and fashion you and transform your heart and make you more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.